Warning, Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam contains mature subject matter. This is Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam Youngman, and I want you to join me every week to talk about pop culture, sports, the sick fuckers who are wrecking this country, and maybe even the weather. But mostly we're going to talk politics, because even though I've fought off a lot of potentially fatal addictions, pills, booze, blow, print journalism, and cigarettes, I've never been able to kick politics. I guess that makes me a sick fucker, too. I'm coming to you today from an undisclosed location in the Hollywood Hills, Los Angeles. I moved here about a year and a half ago from Kentucky, still on the run from the version of me that was a Washington journalist. I was a reporter. I wrote about politics and politicians. It might surprise you to know that most of them are full of shit. I covered three presidential campaigns. I did four years at the White House, covering two different presidents and more House and Senate races than I care to think about. And I aspired to be exactly none of it. I'm a kid from Kentucky. I grew up in a town called Owensboro. It's the same town that produced Florence Henderson, Rex Chapman, and Johnny Depp. I'm not that hip anymore, but I think two of those three people are still pretty cool. Owensboro's a great place to grow up. At least it was. I really don't know. I don't get home that much since the pandemic shut down everything. But back when I was growing up, we could ride our bikes just about everywhere. We celebrated the 4th of July with the symphony orchestra down by the river. It was the kind of place where you grew up fighting imaginary Russians in your backyard during the tail end of the Cold War. In other words, we grew up to be patriots. Or, you know, what Fox News is calling patriots these days. Of course, they wouldn't be shooting imaginary Russians anymore since they've made friends with the real ones. I guess you could say I got my literary abilities, my interest in politics, and my self-destructive anger from my daddy. Whatever's good about me, I got from my mom. I was a mostly good, if somewhat insecure kid. I had an interest in politics that led me to model government. Every year, the YMCA held a mock legislature, and kids from all across the state would go to the state capitol in Frankfurt and pretend to be lawmakers. I fucking loved it. Yeah, I was a nerd. I don't care. It was awesome. One year, I even ran for lieutenant governor. My gimmick was that I put the initials KYA for Kentucky Youth Assembly. I had them shaved in the back of my head. I won my primary, and it was awesome. I lost a general, and it was not awesome. I have never forgotten the kid I lost to. Nick Fagenbush, if you're out there, I still hate your fucking guts, and I'll probably never get over it. I remember once during my sophomore year of high school, I was sitting on a panel of law enforcement from around the state of Kentucky. They were getting our inside information about drug and alcohol use habits among teenagers. Thing is, I didn't really know much about it because I was kind of a fucking square. I remedied that pretty quickly over the summer when I discovered the, the fun parts of marijuana and alcohol, shitty LSD, parties with girls. After that, my meetings with law enforcement seemed to get less and less cordial. I stayed lost like that for years. I got through high school with a B average. My poor mother was a teacher at the school. And I think of all the people who were happy to see me graduate, she was probably near the top of the list. I have to believe I was responsible for every gray hair on her head. My plan was to become a high school English teacher. I didn't give a damn about teaching English to kids. I didn't really give a damn about English. What I did give a damn about was having my summers off. I figured it was a great time to write the great American novel. Smoke weed, drink beer, chase girls, you know, basically keep the high school party going for the rest of my life. But that plan went off the rails when I went to my first classroom observation and a 12-year-old tried to bum a cigarette off me. I realized there was no way I had the patience to try and reach a little shit like me. So the future was looking bleak. I was a rather obvious alcoholic with no direction, no ambition, no clue, and no real effort to get any of them. 
I'd been living hard, and I just kind of assumed that the doors to polite society were permanently closed to me. Then I saw a movie that changed my life. It's not even a great movie. It's Where the Buffalo Roam. It's an 80s movie that Bill Murray was in, playing the part of Hunter S. Thompson, the legendary gonzo journalist. It blew my mind. Wait, you could drink bourbon, eat acid, still fly around the country on the president's campaign plane? Yeah, fucking sign me up. It was a profession that welcomed drunks and scoundrels and apparently Kentuckians, and I was intrigued. As luck would have it, a friend of mine from high school was living with a journalist. We met for drinks not long after I saw that movie. I peppered him with questions about what it was like to be a newspaper reporter, and he looked at me like I was an idiot. In his defense, I was. I was very interested in the parts of Hunter Thompson's career that involved boozing and getting high. I really didn't know much about the journalism stuff. But he was kind enough to take a chance on me. He said he would introduce me to a newspaper editor in the town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville. I didn't even have to think twice about it. I broke up with my girlfriend, packed my golf clubs, my alcoholism into the back of my car, moved to Louisville, enrolled in Journalism 101 at the local community college, and I set about learning how to be a journalist. Jeffersonville was a small town. It was a perfect place to learn how to be a journalist, sort of like Mayberry, but without the personality. I used to cross that bridge from Louisville into Jeffersonville, and I would look down at that river, and there's a story that Muhammad Ali, when he got back from the Olympics, he was wearing his gold medal, and he came across a few white business owners who called him the N-word. Ali was understandably devastated because he just literally fought for his country. So he took off his gold medal, and he threw it in the river. And so every day I would drive to the beginning of my new career, I'd look in that river and I would wonder if Ali's gold medal was resting at the bottom of it. I never really wondered if the legend was true because it sounded like the kind of thing that would happen in Kentucky. I love my home state. I love it like it's a piece of my family. But it's a little bit like loving a piece of your family that has a crippling addiction problem. You're watching it destroy itself and you don't know how to help. It's got so much beauty in it that you want to save it. It's got so much evil in it, you know it's impossible. It hurts me to be away from there. I always remember what my mom told me over lunch one day. She said, Sam, you know, you just never really fit in here. It's a tough thing to hear from your mom, but she was right. And truth of the matter is, the only time I ever felt like I really belonged was in those early days when I was in Louisville, learning how to be a journalist, drinking bourbon, reading Hunter Thompson instead of just watching movies about him and thinking that eating acid was the same thing as doing journalism. They paid me a nickel a word to write stories. So I would write these massive pieces and they would cut them down into actual news stories. I'll never forget the day I sold my first article because it's also the first time I ever got arrested. I got a call in the morning that it was going to run. Maybe the greatest feeling I've ever had. I went to the mall. I bought Rage Against the Machine's new album. And then I went to the golf course where I drank beer and played golf with my buddies most of the day. We retired after that to a bar, have some Jaeger shots and some Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale. Y'all know that shit? It tested like 9% alcohol. It's like moonshine. So we were partying it up, and it was about then that I remembered that I had a date that night. So I called her, and I suggested she just meet us at the bar instead. <laughs> what can I say? I was a real Prince Charming back then. So she came over to the bar. We had a few more shots before she convinced me to head over to Bardstown Road, which if you know Louisville, Bardstown Road is sort of the main drinking drag there. In fact, they've got a bar, bar crawl called the Bambi Walk you can do on your 21st birthday. I almost made it through twice. I never made it all the way through. So we went over to Bardstown Road. We parked in an alley behind Bardstown, and, well, we did what young college kids do. We started making out. It was about that time nature called, so I stepped out of the vehicle to relieve myself and said, Allie, a couple good old boys come up behind me. 
riding their 10 speeds, wearing shorts and collared shirts. And they started saying, boy, put your wing up. I didn't know who the fuck these guys were. So I gave them a middle finger over my shoulder and told them to go to hell. They were, of course, Louisville police officers. So that's how I celebrated my first day as a journalist, by going to jail. But that's really kind of a recurring theme throughout my life. I'd get in trouble and I'd get out of it. It'd be impossible for me to deny that white privilege has played a role in my career, my life, still being here at 43, because it has. I got first chances, second chances, third chances, fourth chances that most Americans would never get. It wasn't because I had money, because I didn't. I was raised by a single mom school teacher. It's just that I'm a white guy with a hint of a country accent, an easy smile, a good handshake. Anyway, I was having a blast. I transferred to a four-year school not far from my hometown that had a great journalism program. I had confidence, real confidence for the first time in my life as I found something I was good at. For the first time in my life, I was able to talk to girls and feel good about it. From there, the world just opened up for me. I did internships in Florida and Memphis. I achieved some popularity on campus. I started getting good grades for like, I don't know, a minute anyway. After college, I started out covering the state house as part of a glorified internship in Nashville, Tennessee for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. It was an hour from where I went to school, and I was still an hour away from that college party mindset. Most of my older colleagues loved me because I liked to smoke and drink and cuss, and a lot of the younger reporters were more professional. I partied hard in Nashville. I would leave my car at the Capitol and walk to work in the morning, late and hungover. My bosses would think that I was absent until they saw my car parked there, and then they would know I'd been there early. I doubt that actually worked on them. They were pretty smart guys, and the Capitol was a pretty small place, but I've convinced myself for 20 years it was a genius idea. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, I was in no condition to drive my car home anyway. When that job ended, after six months, I was not offered a permanent position. There was some question of my maturity. So imagine my surprise and that of my colleagues when just a short while later, I was living in Manchester, New Hampshire and covering my first presidential race. It's amazing how easy it is to fail upwards when you're a white guy in America. Somebody asked me once, what was the secret? How did I have the career that I had? I told him it was simple. I never got married and I just kept moving. I took jobs that other guys couldn't because they were worried about moving their family. And there's really something to that. Be a mercenary. It pays. I guess failing upwards like that should have been my first lesson in politics. New Hampshire is where I really started to understand it. I was told to watch Mark Halpern and learn from him. I'm not even fucking kidding. I watched Judy Woodruff on Inside Politics every day. I traveled the state interviewing presidential candidates, and I partied like a Motley Crue roadie. I was arrogant as hell, and I didn't know anything. I'll never forget the first time I met Dick Gephardt. He was the minority leader in the United States House of Representatives. I didn't know that. I knew he was a big deal, but I didn't know what his title was. But for everything I didn't know, I did know how to bullshit. And in politics, that's a lot. But I made friends with people. I had a great time. From New Hampshire, I moved to Pennsylvania, then to Washington. I spent a little time covering energy policy on Capitol Hill for a newsletter company. I hated it, but they gave me $500 to move to Washington. I then went to work helping a Japanese newspaper build their 2006 campaign coverage, getting myself fired because I was too hungover to get my Japanese handler to a right-wing megachurch one day. I worked my ass off when it was my byline, but I hated that job. I hated the people I worked with, and so I drank, and I drank, and I drank. Mercifully, The Hill took a chance on me. You know The Hill. It's one of those Capitol Hill newspapers like Roll Call or what Politico used to be before they started destroying democracy. They probably didn't know I'd been fired, and I sure as hell didn't volunteer it. But they were going to hire me to be a backup to Aaron Blake, who's now with The Washington Post. Great reporter and really a genius political analyst. And then about a month after I'd started, a new publication launched. It was called Politico, 
and they were going to go all in on covering the presidential race, something the Hill was not set up to do. I imagine what happened is the editors started looking around their newsroom for anybody with even a whiff of presidential campaign experience. And there I was, not knowing shit. So the Hill gave me a chance to cover my second presidential campaign, and I jumped at it. <laughs> I became a workaholic, which was a neat trick for an alcoholic. When I wasn't working, I was drinking, and a lot of times I was doing both at the same time. At the Hill, we didn't just break news. We kind of actually broke the news. We started writing for clicks. When the Drudge Report picked up one of my stories, it broke our servers. By the end of that campaign, I would sometimes have two, three Drudge Report stories a day. Our traffic was like something we'd never seen before, and it helped launch my career to new heights. I was getting calls to do analysis on Fox and sometimes MSNBC. I suspect Fox called more because of my accent. Over the years, I found that most people assumed I was a Republican, and for a long time, I assumed it was because of the way I talked. I came from a Reagan house. My Washington friends were mostly Republicans because my Democratic friends from the 2004 campaign had split for the West Coast. I think about what I did for Fox back then. I think about it a lot now. I look at Tucker Carlson trying to pretend like a terrorist attack didn't happen on January 6th, and I wonder if I helped him build the weapon he's now using against America. It's a shitty thing to live with this kind of guilt when the ambition of your 20s comes back to haunt you like this. It's why I smoke a lot of weed. Well, it's one reason I smoke a lot of weed. In the spring of 2008, my bosses called me in for a meeting. They asked me if I'd be interested in starting a White House beat for the paper. I said yes, and the whole time all I could think about was how worried I was I wouldn't be able to pass the background check. After all, it had only been a few years since the Louisville police were telling me to put my wang away. I covered George W. Bush's last year in office, and I covered Barack Obama's first three. I was drinking myself to death, but my career had never been better. Journalism was continuing to open doors to me that I didn't know existed back in Owensboro. In early 2010, I was a wreck. Work was going fine, but my drinking finally cost me more than I was willing to lose. It cost me a relationship I cared about, and I decided to quit the sauce. That decision came on a Saturday night. It was a hard Saturday night, one I won't go into details about here. But I will say that I was supposed to be on Air Force One that Monday to go cover Joe Biden's mother's funeral. I coveted that seat on that plane, but I still asked somebody else to go because I was going through terrible withdrawals and I was terrified that if I left my apartment, I would drink. A week later, I was in rehab back in Kentucky, a bargain place, a real shithole that my mom could afford because I had no savings and my insurance was of no help. Trying to get help in America for addiction is a real kick in the face. Just that week waiting, trying to find a rehab to get into was very informative. I always assumed that if a day ever came that I wanted to give that shit up, it'd be easy to do. You'd be rushed right into a, a nice comfy bed in Malibu. Turns out that's not the way it works. It's really fucking hard to get help if you've got a problem like that. I was damn lucky. My sister just happened to be riding in a car with somebody she knew from the gym who'd gone to this rehab place. It's good that it was a shithole. It was the humbling I needed. When you go from the White House to a duplex with meth addicts, it has a way of getting your attention. I've always looked back on that time like the Siberian training montage of Rocky IV. It was where I needed to go, when I needed to go. I returned to Washington in a blizzard, feeling shaky, very uncertain of my future. My identity had been that of the crazy hard-partying journalist. I didn't know how to just be the journalist part. I didn't even know if I liked journalism. In time, the help of friends, I started to feel like myself again. My work got better. I remembered why I really did it. I started to care more. I started to care about the mission more. My relationships improved. My life became manageable. And I was bored out of my fucking mind. So after about six months, I started smoking weed again. I'd given it up when I moved to Washington, convinced I wasn't smart enough to keep smoking and be successful there. I was wrong. 
In the fall of 2011, I got a job offer from Reuters. It was a bad fit. I should not have taken the job. When the 2012 election finally ended, I was on the outs, disgusted with Washington journalism and politics. Oh, and I'd picked up a nice little cocaine habit on the way. When a job opened up back in Lexington, it seemed like a sign. So I went home and I went to work making enemies. One of the first things I did when I got back to Kentucky was to write a lengthy magazine piece for Politico, telling the whole city of Washington to go fuck itself. I really, really regret one part of that. I wish I'd aimed a little better. I hit the whole city when really I just wanted to hit the town within the town. Washington itself is amazing. Great people, great food, great culture. It's the town within a town that makes me sick to my fucking stomach. I was coming in right after Barack Obama's second term had really gotten underway. The midterms of 2014 were starting, and I was to cover Mitch McConnell. I was agreeing with the criticism from the right that Democrats and the media were out-of-touch elitist. I don't know if I was just mad I was seeing the same fucking 10 people on Morning Joe every morning, or if I was mad because I wasn't one of them. All I knew is that Washington was a club and that the American people were on the outside looking in. But I think that was true of me, too. No matter how far inside I got, I never felt like an insider. I had a huge chip on my shoulder because of where I was from. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. It took me seven and a half years to get my goddamn undergrad. So I took that anger and I took that sense of grievance to Kentucky, where they were already stewing in their own anger and their own grievances. I got close to Mitch McConnell. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. I got friendly with the fucking devil. I was accused of all kinds of awful shit by Democrats and my competitors, but his opponent was a goddamn joke. Hell, one time she accidentally texted me that she wanted to kill me. But there were other reasons. Mitch knew politics. I could learn more doing 20 minutes off the record with him than I could learn in a week of making phone calls. I wanted clicks and scoops and some of my dying newspaper's conservative readers back, and this seemed like a good way to do it. Hell, when I got the job, my editor-in-chief said, Mitch McConnell hadn't talked to this paper in years. If you can get an interview with him, I'll take you to dinner. I learned a lot watching Mitch. I remember we were in Hazard, Kentucky once. And one of McConnell's aides told me she'd been handing out stickers to the kids. Mitch waved her over to the car. He was sitting in the back seat getting ready to start a parade route. And he told her, don't hand them to the kids. Put them on the kids. That way, when the parents take them off later, they see the name Mitch McConnell. It's little shit like that you learn watching him. You see this guy that looks like a 100-year-old version of Yertle the Turtle who couldn't possibly be intimidating. But here he is in the Senate for like 100 fucking years and ruling the universe and keeping people poor. And you're like, how the hell does this happen? And then you go to Muhlenberg County, Kentucky with him. And you're like, oh, how the fuck did he remember that jeweler's name from 30 years ago? That's how that guy keeps winning. Well, that and he just fucking destroys anybody that comes up against him. All told, I covered three races in Kentucky. Well, two and a half if you consider that one of them was Rand Paul's 2016 presidential run. Those three races were the most miserable of my career. The one that finished me was the 2015 governor's race. The Republican primary had been bloody, and I was not spared. If you weren't paying attention to Kentucky politics in 2015, and really, why would you be? You might not remember Matt Bevan. He'd come on the scene in 2014 as a Tea Party darling, challenging Mitch McConnell in a Senate primary and losing badly. Then he came back and he ran for governor. When the race ended in November, Matt Bevin was the winner. Matt Bevin was Trump before there was Trump. He was my first experience covering somebody who would just lie to your face about something really obvious. You'd say the sky was blue and he'd swear up and down that it wasn't. He was an angry, arrogant little man who talked about his faith almost as much as he lied. I fought with him a lot. First, when he ran against McConnell in the 2014 Senate primary and again when he ran for governor, we hated each other. Neither one of us really tried to hide it at all. 
we'd end up in these small towns where he'd do a campaign event. Nobody would show up because nobody liked him and no other reporters would show up because he was such a loser. So it'd just be the two of us not talking to each other while he went from business to business to introduce himself. I always patted myself on the back for having the guts to show up because I knew he was always pissed off that I did. The polls showed him losing by five points the whole race for governor. He won by nine. When he did, I retreated to my mom's house to decompress. I was in shock. Everything I thought I knew about politics, about people, about religion, none of it made sense anymore. I'd been so arrogant for so long, assuming I had some deep understanding of the electorate. I didn't know shit. I met with a preacher to try and understand. He was of no help. And then on Christmas Eve, I decided to quit. I was going to quit journalism. I was going to quit this thing that had saved my life. My two weeks notice ended on the day Rand Paul dropped out of his race for the presidency. Though I definitely wish I'd been back on the beat when he got his ass whooped by his elderly neighbor. And then I went back to being lost. Lost like I had been in my early 20s. I remember my first morning as a civilian, somebody who's not a reporter. I remember I woke up, I got out of bed, I took a shower, and I didn't know how to get dressed. I knew how to dress as Sam the Reporter. It was an image I'd been cultivating since I first started wearing a brown corduroy jacket in college. But now? Now I didn't have any fucking clue. For the next year, I drifted. First to a PR job at a buddy's firm, and then to a blockchain company to work for a former Obama White House press person. I didn't understand that shit at all. And then Donald Trump won a race I was sure he wouldn't win. A few months after that, my mom died. I'd lost my country and the son of my universe in the span of a few months. I'd been lost before, but after this happened, I was just completely off the map. Spent the rest of the year in a haze, living on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, going for walks, smoking a lot of pot, binging Game of Thrones, and watching Donald Trump take a wrecking ball to everything I held dear. I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I knew if there was going to be a fight against Donald Trump, then I wanted to be involved in it. So I joined on with the congressional campaign back in Kentucky. The mayor there was somebody I'd known from my previous life, and he was going to run for Congress. When we started the race, we had a 42-point lead. We lost. And when we lost, I felt like I'd officially become a Democrat. All along, I'd been watching, exasperated, as my former colleagues in Washington were going out of their way to normalize Trump, writing pathetic beat sweeteners to get in good with Kellyanne Conway and other idiots like that. I first saw it when Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski assaulted right-leaning reporter Michelle Fields. It had happened right in front of several people. A Washington Post reporter saw it firsthand and wasn't shy telling people that. But for the most part, mainstream journalists either didn't seem to believe Fields or didn't want to lose access to Lewandowski or Trump by making a big deal of it. The anger I felt watching them get a free pass on that grew. It grew when Trump was asking Russia for help and nobody seemed to give a shit. It grew even more when he won. Look, anger's nothing new for me. But I was angry at my former colleagues, and the more I watched them fail, the angrier I got, both at them and myself. They were making the same bargain that I had made when I was covering McConnell. You trade access for hard questions. You get lots of inside information and questions and attention, and you get clicks and scoops and the admiration of your national colleagues, but you don't really get the story, and you sure as fuck aren't serving the people you're supposed to be. It's a regret I've been living with since Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat. It's a regret that's only gotten worse as I watched Trump lay waste to this country. And it was just a week ago, I got a news alert from my old newspaper, the Lexington Herald-Leader. It was a story that made me so mad, I immediately called to cancel my subscription. And then as I sat there fuming, I realized the thing that made me maddest about that story was that I would have fucking written it. It was about how Rand Paul, not Mitch McConnell, was leading through impeachment because Rand had come up with the great idea to declare it unconstitutional. 
I guess that's what passes for leadership these days. The more we learn, the more we should give a medal to his fucking neighbor. Anyway, with all that anger and a great big L on my scorecard as a Democratic consultant, I went looking for more work, landing with a fledgling super PAC that was supposed to redefine what it meant to be a Democrat while replacing the other major Democratic super PACs in the 2020 election. But it didn't quite go down like that. It was a disorganized mess that had trouble making payroll and included a couple of Hollywood types who wanted to defend Tucker Carlson, but not AOC. Every day I asked myself, what the fuck are we even doing here? I only stayed on a few months and it would have been a total bust, but I met somebody who was just as fed up with losing as I was. And that brings us to our first guest. Adam Parkamenko is a democratic political strategist. He's a badass digital grassroots organizer, and he's got a hell of a Twitter game. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, let me tell y'all that Adam and I worked together on quite a few races in the last couple of years. Uh, he's sort of like a partner in crime with me. Adam, how the hell are you, buddy? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. I want to take a minute now to introduce you to my producer here at Burning Bridges, Ruby. Hi, Adam. Ruby, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Ruby Tuesday saved my life. I was in a Beverly Hills street fight. Some trumper got an American flag and was hitting me about the ankles with it. Ruby saw what was happening, dragged me to safety, and I always swore to myself that if I ever got the chance, I'd repay her kindness. So now she's burning bridges with me. I'm glad you, uh, you survived and overcame. Just barely. <laughs> and thus the legend of Ruby was born. So Adam, I wonder if, one of the things I want to talk to you today about, I think Americans are just starting to really feel how much power they have. You know, this last election, we saw 81 million Americans turn out for Joe Biden. We saw... 75 million Americans turn out for the other guy. <clears throat> People are starting to feel it. They're remembering who's in charge of this country. And you've sort of been feeling that for a while now. Can you tell people how you got involved, how you got started? Actually, in high school, I thought, you know, uh, I watched Hillary Clinton on C-SPAN give a speech where she talked about uh, leaving this country in a better place for my generation than her generation found it. And, you know, it inspired me and was sort of one of the first things that I had ever watched and been involved in in politics. So... At that point, I wanted her to run against George Bush in uh, 2004, tried to get her to do that. She didn't. Uh, she reached out. She hired me. I started working for her in 2003 at the end of the year, um, and I worked for her for years and years after that. I spent probably 15 years kind of on and off working for her and then ultimately started ready for Hillary because I thought that um, you know she was leaving the State Department, didn't have a political committee, and... We learned from Barack Obama that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. So January 2013, I started ready for Hillary. A lot of people hear the word super PAC. It's sort of like the word lobbyist. They immediately think evil. They immediately think Mitch McConnell, money in politics, corruption. Explain to me why a super PAC is a good thing. It is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And Democrats cannot unilaterally disarm. And, and basically, you know, what ready for Hillary was, it was one of the first grassroots super PACs. But we, we turned the model of the super PAC upside down. And rather than just take, you know, a check for a million dollars from a corporation, um, we viewed taking $1 from an individual as important because if someone's going to give you a dollar, it's kind of like uh, being at the horse track race. You know, if someone puts a dollar on a horse, they're going to be cheering just as loud, maybe louder than the person that puts, you know, a million dollars on that horse, but you're building something bigger. And that person that gives a dollar is going to give a dollar over and over again. I mean, it always seemed to me like the, the cool thing about some of the stuff you're doing is it's not corporate backed. Like you don't have huge donors. You've got just regular people doing this stuff. And so you're able to do stuff like Kremlin Annex. You're able to do some, you know, some real in the streets sort of activism instead of, I don't know, maybe the 30,000 foot stuff. You know, you're not you're not announcing to the New York Times that you're getting ready to launch a seventy five million dollar ad campaign. You're you're raising money to get water for a Black Lives Matter march. 
Yeah. And, and I think the thing about it is almost everything that we do, um, its success lies on whether there's energy and excitement to help that person or that committee or that cause. Um, as, as you know, more than anyone else, you go out there and, you know, you may have an incredible idea. And if one of these major dollar donors put a million dollars behind it, it could be a wild success. But at the end of the day, um, they're not interested in that stuff. They do the stuff that, you know, uh, folks just do year after year after year. And so, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, the best ideas come from outside of Washington, D.C., and the best ones are the startups that succeed because thousands and thousands of people get involved in them. Well, let's say I want to start a super PAC. I want to get involved. I'm sick of the politicians in my town or my state, and I want to get involved. I want to raise some money. What do I do? What's the first thing you do? To start a super PAC, you go on the IRS, you get a uh, EIN number. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like a social security number, but it's for a committee. And then you file with the- See, I thought the first thing, I thought you were going to tell me the first thing you do is you get a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, when I started, when I started ready for Hillary, I reached out, the first person I reached out to was Paul Vigala. And I, I said, you know, what do you do? And he said, there's three things that you need to do. Number one, get a lawyer. Number two, do number one. And number three, make sure number one is really good. Um, and so, you know, I followed that advice and we had an incredible lawyer and, and, we had a bunch of uh, false complaints from Republicans that, uh, you know, we took on and won every single one of them. But um, yeah, I think, Sam, you're giving your, uh, your listeners some good advice. Oh, hell, that's always my advice. Get a lawyer, no matter what it is. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I probably needed one more than, more than most people in politics. I don't think I've ever tried to hide my uh, my contempt for uh, for a lot of everyday Washington stuff. How do you define yourself? Are you an insider? Are you an outsider? Are you both? Uh, I like to think of myself as someone who's not a green green room groupie, except Sam tells me the otherwise when I sound weak. <laughs> um, so I'm very much uh, can tell you I have very few relations. What I called you a green room groupie? That doesn't sound like me. I'm usually so chill. <laughs> I've done a, a, a good job over the last uh, two or three years, uh, you know, often in partnership with Sam of burning bridges in Washington, D.C., but I do have some good longstanding relationships. Um, but I would, I would not call myself an insider, even though I've been in this business for 20 years. Yeah, I've really, uh, I really wrecked Adam's reputation. I feel like a real dickhead about it. <laughs> so uh, let's, talk nope. about, let's talk about 2016. What happened? Why did we get stuck with four years of cruel incompetence. I think there's probably two different things that were sort of working in a parallel. One, I think the Trump campaign did an incredible job and you could hear it from, you know, people that worked at Twitter and Facebook in July of 2015 that were saying like he's spending incredible amounts of money to build the accounts of not just himself, but like the committee and his staff and so forth. And we just didn't really do that on the Democratic side. And I would say the other thing is there were a number of people that were a complete disservice to Hillary. Um, having seen her run in 2008 and 2016, she was a much, much better candidate in 2016 in terms of like the fundamentals of what can I do? Who do I need to call? Where do I need to go? And I think that, you know, uh, it, I kind of think of this as like the CIA where, you know, you're, you're taking a bunch of information from a printer and you're making decisions off of that rather than your agents in the field. And I think that Brooklyn, where her headquarters was at the time, relied heavily on the information that they were seeing from polling and from analytics as opposed to like what's going on in the states. Oh shit, let's burn some bridges. 
So the argument that she was just a bad candidate is just a lazy one that I hear from my extended family when we talk about what happened then. Yeah, I think so. She was the opposite of a lazy candidate. So I can tell you like in 2008, and and I think she would say this if she was on here, like she, you know, if you gave her 300 calls of folks that she needed to reach out to that were super delegates, she did not work as hard as she should have in 2008. She worked hard, but like there were a lot of things she didn't want to do. And it was a, you know, an interesting number of interesting dynamics in the race. And 2016, she had learned from everything that went wrong in 2008 and learned a lot that President Obama's campaign did right in 2012 and 2008. And she built upon that, you know, and she tried to bring in a number of people who who did really good things for Barack Obama. But the, the other thing is that a lot of people treated her like she was Barack Obama and she wasn't. And I think she got a lot of really, um, really bad advice. And I think people were a huge disservice to her. And I think that you know, there were times where people were asking, like, you know, why aren't we going here or there? And it, it, we were pointing to numbers as opposed to the folks who were, you know, in Wisconsin or in Florida saying, like, hey, here are the, you know, the 30 things that we actually need that can make this a huge success. It's interesting you say it about 2008. I, I remember covering her and Bill Clinton at a New Hampshire County Fair, Labor Day weekend 2007, I believe. Was this, it was really was this something. before or after? Was this before or after you leaked the uh, Bill Clinton finance call? Okay. <laughs> I didn't leak it. It was leaked to me. You know, that's, that's the difference between being you. a reporter you, and an sorry, operative. You, you, you reported on it. <laughs> that was a great scoop for me. You were merely and a passerby. You know, that got me. I, I remember that was one of the first times I did a big cable hit. I did, uh, I think it was Keith Oberman's show. And I was so excited that they sent a car for me that I had them drop me off at a bar so my buddies could see me get out of it. <laughs> it was widely discussed at headquarters in Arlington at the time. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, but I'm thinking back to that weekend at 2007, watching them campaign at a county fair. And I got to tell you, the reason it's always stood out to me is because I felt like I was seeing, I don't know, like Sinatra at the Sands. It was, you know, Bill Clinton was in his element. I remember he was wearing like a pink gingham shirt, white jeans, and ostrich skin boots, you know, which were, they were a gift from James Lee Witt. And I watched this guy campaign and every person he talked to, it was very personal. You know, he, he would take a very, you know, he would find something about them like a common bond. And at one point I hear him talking to a secret service agent that's with him. And he says, where's Hillary? And the agent points ahead and, and Bill Clinton says, is she not shaking as many hands as, as we are? And I, it really struck with me just the difference in how they campaign. But I think the thing people always missed about Hillary is just this core competence. She's so smart and she's so good at what she does. Do, do you think the campaign just failed to convey that? Yeah, I think I think that's probably one thing. I think the other thing, you know, talking about Bill Clinton, and I, this is a point that no one ever really makes, is that they pulled an Al Gore of 2000, which was like, we've spent at that point, 2016, 16 years talking about the fact that like Al Gore was worried to campaign with Bill Clinton and didn't, you know, he was underutilized and Bill Clinton's one of the smartest political minds and campaigners in the you know, the history of this country. And we did the same thing in 2016. Um, we, we, we underutilized him. He had serious questions and concerns. I think a number of people lied to him and we didn't utilize him, you know, when he was saying like, Hey, I'll go to Wisconsin 20 times. I mean, don't you think the world had changed though? I mean, his past really became far more of an issue than it's ever been before. Uh, you look back to 2008 and you look at his efforts that, you know, the, the idea that he could swoop into South Carolina if you don't remember, Bill Clinton in 2008, Hillary Clinton's aides were like, keep him away from South Carolina. He's, he's just not as sharp. He's not as good at this stuff as he used to be. And Bill Clinton still saw himself as, you know, he used to be referred to as the first black president. He really thought he could go in there 
and, and make a big difference. And it just, it completely blew up. He really ended up offending a lot of black voters. And, uh, you know, I think all was forgiven by the time 2016 rolled around. But 2008 was just a disaster. And I think part of it is because he just didn't realize how much the ground had shifted underneath his feet. It's very, I think, illustrative of just how much politics changes fast. And, you know, I think Bill Clinton had in his mind he could just go to South Carolina or even in 2014. You know, he would come to Kentucky to campaign with the Democrat there. And he's like, you know, look, I won Kentucky twice. It's like, yeah, buddy, but it is not the same state and it is definitely not the same world. Yep. Well, look, that's true. And, I, and, and you know, you feel like Democrats used to have like a super majority in Arkansas at one point, maybe not. But like Bill Clinton will be the first to tell you today, we are so behind in a state like Arkansas that we need to find one or two people that we get elected and we start to rebuild the party around them, right? Like, let's not boil the ocean and try to elect 30 people. Same thing, fast forward to 2016, the difference between where he wasn't going and where folks wanted him was if the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party is asking to have Bill Clinton come seven times, they know their state better than anyone else. You're, no state is cookie cutter, but also within each state, there's tons of differences. When you have people saying, Bill Clinton is an added benefit to come in here and do this, and you don't listen to them, you don't help them, you don't fulfill their needs. You know, the, the whole idea of Brooklyn should have been um, a, a customer service kind of enterprise. And the things that they were cheerleading in, like uh, getting excited about, was when like Iowa in the primaries and caucuses had more staff members than in Brooklyn. I think it was like 500 in Iowa and 400 in Brooklyn. Like there should have never been 400 people there. You didn't need that. I'll tell you what the first thing that scared me. It was when I started seeing people talking about Hamilton. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, how many people do they think have seen this Broadway play? Yep. And it just, you know, I because it's, it's my biggest worry with Democrats. I worry about two things. I worry about not being tough enough, and I worry about being seen as out of touch. Now, right now, there's nobody more out of touch than the Republican Party. You look at what they've done so far in 2021. They've emerged as the party of domestic terrorists. They've emer emerged as the party of QAnon. And they've emerged as the party of blocking relief to the American, or trying to block relief to the American people. So I'm not worried about who's actually out of touch. I'm worried about who seems out of touch. Why do Democrats always fall into this trap? Is, is it the media? I mean, I have a theory it's the media, but I want to hear it, it from you. You know, I feel like uh, if I knew the answer to that, none of us would be on this podcast right now and we'd probably be doing other stuff. But the, I don't know. I mean, you know, I can, and just go back to 2016, not to harp on it, but I think the other big thing is like we spent more time focused on how to minimize people and shut people out of stuff rather than elevate them. And, you know, Bill Clinton said to me two things early on, um, maybe 2003, 2004, that have always stuck with me. One, it's better to get 100 things done and 95 you'll get right, five you'll fuck up, four we can fix, one we can live with, but we got all these things done. And too many of these committees is a place where good ideas go to die. There were people in the states, in key states, that wanted to be part of an organization and wanted to be, you know, co-chair of Texas or co-chair of Wisconsin. And we spent more time trying to figure out how we could keep them silenced and not speaking to the Clintons rather than lift them up and help them with what they needed to succeed in their states. I think those are two things that feed into why this party is so often so weak, right? Like we just, we kind of, you know, we're afraid to say what we feel. We know that the activists often when we say what we feel, agree with what we're saying. Um, and then you're, you know, you're kind of silenced and shut out in DC, but you know, it's, um, it's an ongoing problem. I mean, there's one really obvious thing we're not talking about with why did we lose in 2016? I mean, Hillary's a woman and 
you know, a woman in politics is like a Christmas tree. Republicans spend a fortune just decorating them with, uh, you know, ornaments of just disdain for the American people to consume. I mean, you know, how much money is spent to, you know, define Hillary as a monster over decades? Yeah. And, and I've said forever, like she'll be six feet under and they'll still be, you know, using her in Facebook ads just because that's what they do. Well, that's uplifting. <laughs> that's yeah. Do you think we'll see a female president in like, let's say my lifetime? Sam will be long dead because he's 100 years old. God but. damn, that hurts. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I you know, I <laughs> look, here's the thing. I to, to get it like the inside D.C. politics of which, you know, I'm not really part of, um, you know, what people are now saying is like Joe Biden never said on the record that he's not going to run for reelection. So you can already kind of see like, you know, the folks that are pushing uh, Kamala in 2024 you know, going against the folks that think Joe Biden should run for reelection. And I, and I, you know, I don't know how that's going to play out, but I do think that there's a lot of people that never thought we'd see uh, Kamala Harris as VP um, in January of 2021. So, um, you know, but we never thought there'd be an insurrection of our capital either. You were pretty critical of the last DNC chair. How do you feel about Jamie Harrison being over there? I think that Jamie Harrison is awesome. He gets it. Um, I ran for vice chair of the DNC in 2017 while Jamie was running for chair. We became really good friends in 2017, traveling around the country together. And he is, he's a sincere, awesome guy with, you know, not only a great story, but also somebody who fundamentally gets it because he's a former state party chair that was constantly fighting and arguing for everything that he wanted. I think his biggest challenge um, and I won't name them because, you know, I think both Sam and I and others don't, don't like them, but there was a story out that talked about how Jamie has not been able to bring in, uh, the folks that he wanted to run the DNC and that, you know, the white house has sort of dictated that. And, you know, while that often happens, um, as they're taking care of folks after a campaign, um, yeah, I think Jamie's going to do a great job. And I think some of the existing folks there, um, including the person running the DNC right now, Sam Cornell is, you know, they're going to do great things. They've reached out. They're looking to make up for the things that didn't happen in 2016 in terms of a presidential campaign on the digital side. Well, let's talk about the digital side. I mean, that's that's where a lot of your strength comes from. You've got, what, 540,000 Twitter followers? I would say 600,000. Give them credit what credit is due, Sam. Depends <laughs> how many Russian assets Twitter's deleted in a certain day. Twitter is huge. Go back to, you know, the candidate that ran against Devin Nunez in 2018, Andrew Jans. He raised $10 million, mostly through Twitter, which then became an email program. And he he ended his campaign with 125,000 followers on Twitter. The candidate that ran last time against Devin Nunez ended his campaign with, I think, 260,000 followers on Twitter. Your campaign can be made or or broken on Twitter, both as the nominee, but also in terms of how much money you raised um, I was I was out in um, Southern California on my way to see Sam to go to a comedy club, and Elise Stefanik had said all sorts of crazy things uh, in Congress at yeah, this hearing. The <laughs> Who is she? She's a congresswoman from New York. You might remember from uh, the impeachment trial, she really made a name for herself as a, a human shield for Donald Trump's crimes. Try yep. to block all of that out, but I'll keep that. In. Yeah, I feel that. That's probably a smart thing to do. I was texting with Sam. I think it was like a an hour ride from where we were to get to L.A. And I texted Kyle, who I work with and Sam works with, and I was like, "Who is running against this woman?" And then Sam and I kind of went back and forth, and we did this this tweet that basically said, "You know, Elise Stefanik just soiled her pants in front of the entire country for folks to see." Here's her opponent, 
We like to keep it classy. In that 48 hours, <laughs> um, her opponent raised $1.1 million uh, all through Twitter. So, I mean, Twitter can be huge. I mean, but, you know, also every single day there's somebody that, you know, everyone's going after. Nobody wants to be that person. Um, but, you know, we've lived through that. And uh, uh, I recall posting a video of Mitch McConnell uh, falling, going on stage. And, you know, for 48 hours, every single person in the Democratic Party and Republican Party asked me to, you know, kill myself and delete the tweet. And uh, the tweet is still up for anybody that wants to see it. I, I certainly do want to see that. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, there were a lot of Mitch defenders back then. I don't know if he's got quite so many now. I saw a YouGov poll yesterday that has his favorable rating at 17%. I think, you know, warts on the bottom of your feet polls at 19%. So he's got some work to do. Yep. Well, he's currently trying to get the, the rules changed back in uh, Kentucky so that, you know, the Democratic governor can't pick his successor when he leaves early. Well, not just that, but announcing this lockstep opposition to real COVID relief, it's it just it's such bad politics. And, you know, I guess they figured they did it for eight years and it worked out all right for them. So maybe they'll give it a try again. But it just seems to me that, you know, one thing I really like that the Biden administration has realized early on is that they can't repeat some of the mistakes of 2009. You can't wait for Republicans to come to a negotiating table that they have no real intention of ever coming to. And so I'm happy to see that. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing though, like to go back to how many problems that we have and how weak people can be is like we, the Republicans not only filled, you know, the Ginsburg seat, but also are now trying to stop near attendance. So it's like, if they succeed in that, they win when they're in the majority, they win when they're in the minority. And it's, it's a huge problem for us. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a not too shaky limb and guess that by the time this airs, near attendance confirmation will have either been pulled or defeated. And it's really just fucking ridiculous. I mean, it, it's it's amazing when the men in the United States Senate decide to boss up. You know, they uh, they spent four years pretending they'd never heard the word Twitter. And now all of a sudden they're experts on mean tweets. Plus, you know, when did criticizing an elected official start disqualifying you from a job in government? Seems like that's kind of the... You know, the essence of America is being able to tell these fuckers how much they blow. It's insane. And, and as you and I have talked about, Nira's biggest problem is that she did not tweet inciting an insurrection on the Capitol because then they'd all be jumping over each other to support her. So I'm not asking this question on behalf of the progressive community, because quite frankly, I don't think I've got the street cred for it. But I know there's a lot of confusion out there about this. So I wanted to give you a chance to clear it up. Adam, are you a cop? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I, I I am a sworn law enforcement officer with the uh, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. So you say and, that and uh, I immediately I start looking for shit to hide. <laughs> I, I have been for 13 years. Uh, I'm proud of it. We've got an incredible group of people that are reserve officers that come from you know all walks of life in terms of the background and experience and what they do. Um, I think I'm probably one of the few people in D.C. that is so heavily involved in politics. I mean, it's got to be awkward, especially after the last year we've been through. I mean, you're you're a member of a party, you're an activist in a party where you know one wing wants to defund the police, the other wing wants to reform the police, but is terrified of the words "reform the police." And then you've got January 6th happen and you're, we're, you know, we're looking at some police waving protesters in and we're looking at some police, you know, fighting just a hellish nightmare hours of combat only to be, you know, only have that, to have that dismissed by Republicans. You know, where do you, where do you fit on that spectrum? When I, when I'm doing anything with the police department, I, I turn off 
anything I'm doing, you know, and I focus on that and I keep the two worlds separate and I'm proud of what they did. I think that they were the ones that sort of came to the rescue on uh, January 6th to hold the line. I've said this before publicly, but the police department has been incredibly supportive, the DC police department of my first amendment rights. They've never asked me to not say something. They've never asked me to take something down. They've never questioned something I've said. So, I mean, what goes through your mind when you watch the George Floyd video? What goes through your mind when you see the Rochester police skate or the Buffalo police skate or, God, insert police department? Now, look, I, I, I understand. I get this conflict. My brother's in law enforcement. I, I respect the hell out of him. And so, I, I, you know, I, I struggle with some of these same issues. But some of these videos we see, it seems like there are parts of the country where the cops are the criminals. I mean, what, how do we get out of this? What, I mean, what's going through your mind when you see that? I wish I knew how we could get out of it. I will say that the terrible, terrible people and the folks that are committing crimes or the folks that are not upholding their oath, unfortunately, often define, you know, 99.9% of the incredible people out there, you know, on January 6th, I'm, I logged into Facebook, you know, the, the stories about people that were trying to figure out if they're their fathers and their sisters and their brothers were going to make it home that night and were okay. Or one of the officers that were injured, you know, those were the people that, that I know. And the folks that, um, that I work with, you know, don't stand for that kind of stuff. And when someone's, you know, sees someone that is doing something wrong, you report that and that's what it comes down to. But unfortunately, I think in general, um, especially under Trump, I mean, look at Trump, like he, you know, he came out and he did these events where he basically, you know, urged officers to do the wrong things, you know, and you had a group of people here and there that were like chuckling behind him. Um, it defines a very good, very good group of people that, you know, I mean, but you, what you say, the people I work with don't do that kind of stuff. Can you understand why people are skeptical? I mean, they see the videos. They, I mean, they, and they, or they, if they haven't seen the videos, then they've probably, you know, a lot of people have had this experience themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wish I had the perfect answer for this other than, you know, in 13 years, I've worked with some incredible people. And, you know, if you see something that is wrong um, or inappropriate, you have to report it just like anywhere else. Do the police in this country have a white supremacist problem? I don't think so. I think that there is a, a group of people in every sector of every industry in this country that are racist. And, you know, while there's incredible uh, procedures and processes in place to thoroughly vet these folks. Um, you know, we learn every day that like, you know, this realtor or this law enforcement officer, there was a retired officer from NYPD that I believe was just indicted or arrested for attacking an MPD officer in DC. I saw that. The eye gouger guy was a cop. I mean, it's I, crazy. I, you know, so I, I think that this is just a, it's a problem in every corner of this country and every community and some more than others. But the problem is, is when, you know, if there's a white supremacist problem in every sector and every, every, you know, workplace, this, the problem is that this workplace or this sector, they're holding guns. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And there needs to be some sort of um, reform around, you know, there's, you, you can report a bad cop and because of unions, because of rules, maybe that bad cop doesn't get removed, which is what we're seeing all the time um, and different reports and cases. Well, that actually raises, that raises an interesting question for me. Do you feel, it seems to me like after January 6th, there's been this almost deafening silence from police unions who we usually hear from, you know, on just about anything. Am I wrong about that? There's been some great statements from unions. I think that 
are not interesting to people and so that they're not getting amplified. Um, and I'll just say one more thing on this kind of topic, like in general, you know, I was one of the first officers with the DC police department that was trained as a crisis intervention officer to respond on behalf of the department when we had uh, a call for a suicide or a mental health issue, you know, and, and I can only, um, well, I'm not speaking for the department. I can only speak for myself, but I will just say in terms of the department that I've worked with, you know, they were one of the first that went and tried to make sure that, you know, I spent um, a great deal of time at, at, at homes for folks that were um, having mental health issues and getting to learn them and understand them. And, you know, and our job is to respond there and try to help those people um, and not have some of these other issues. So uh, just in terms of well, what do you, you know, what do you think of the argument that funding that goes to teaching police stuff like that should actually go to a different a different kind of first responder, someone who's actually trained to deal with mental health emergencies instead of a police officer who maybe isn't armed and is a social worker. And- exactly, somebody who's not armed to begin with. Look, every single one of these calls is different, right? But let's let's put a scenario in which you take a civilian who's trained to do that, and they're the person that responds. You know, there's a number of people who become suicidal who hold a gun to their head, you know, what, what are you thinking? Are you going to have law enforcement that's sort of at bay waiting? Because it's, it's a really difficult issue. I want to switch gears for a minute and uh, talk about the Kremlin Annex. I'm not sure everybody knows what that is. I, I think it's some of the most beautiful performance protests I've ever seen in my life. You mind to tell people a little bit about what it is and how you got it started? I guess 2018, there was that uh, Helsinki press conference. Ah, uh, yes, the Helsinki sellout. <laughs> um, and, and we put hell and H-E-L-L in all caps. Um, and, you know, it was Trump and Putin. And uh, Trump was flying back from that that night. And Philippe Reines on Twitter said, how do we start a protest? And someone responded, I think you just did. And that night when uh, Trump was arriving back at the White House, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were just there um, to show how pissed off. I mean, this was like a final straw for so many people. It was you know, absolutely disgusting where he was siding with Putin over the U.S. military and U.S. intelligence agencies. And that night basically became a reoccurring um, protest, you know, day in and day out. For years um and the name kremlin annex came off of twitter and so that's what we sort of called it and got you know a twitter handle and so forth and there was a key and core group of people that showed up every single night some nights we had you know 1800 people some nights we had you know four people in the rain um and we also used it in terms of fundraising to try to hire and support you know local artists mariachi bands uh taco trucks you know you name it um i think the only I, we never Donald. Yeah, Rosie Rosie O'Donnell was one of the biggest nights. She brought, you know, two buses of uh, Broadway singers down. And, you know, uh, we, you know, as we all know, she she really gets under Trump's skin. And uh, it was sort of the kind of perfect storm. I think the thing I love about the annex so much is it, it's just so American. Like you didn't have to be connected to start it. You didn't have to know somebody. You didn't have to have a ton of money. You didn't have to have, you know, add money. All you had to do is have social media and an idea, and you were able to build this thing and not just build it, but sustain it for two years. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I'd say it always had its ups and downs because like, it's like, all right, there's like, you know, half a foot of snow. What are we doing here? Um, but it, it, <laughs> it, it, success was because of folks on, on Twitter. I mean, we, we would say like, what do you want to see next? 
Do you think this is a good idea? What about like, what does everybody think about opera singers tonight? Um, and folks just loved it and continued it. And, uh, you know, there were a core group of people, whether something bigger or small was going on that continued to make sure that it had the resources it needed to continue. Was it especially gratifying against Trump and his obviously known extremely fragile ego? You knew that you were <laughs> really getting under his skin. Things like that. And uh, Devin Nunes's cow on Twitter for these men with their razor thin egos. Yeah, I, I, I would say like the the two most gratifying moments were one when when uh, John Arabosis, who used to run America Blog and uh, you know is is kind of prominent in the progressive community, got this video and picture of Trump turning around in front of the White House and looking at all the protesters, just looking disgusted. And the second item was sort of you know what we built was able to you know during the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. Um, when folks were looking for support, we already had a vehicle that had been up and running for a couple of years that we were able to feed um, that sort of energy, excitement and fundraising into to support what they were doing and then provide, you know, water and shelter and, uh, you know, PPE for the pandemic and free meals. Um, and, you know, had we not sort of been doing what we were doing, for, we didn't want any ownership of it. We just wanted to lift up sort of the new thing that was taken over in Washington, D.C., and support it. And we were in a position to do so because what was already built by folks. So what's next? Trump's gone. Trumpism is still here, though. So what's next for you? I think a key thing is expanding our majority in the House. And I'm surprised, shocked and disgusted by how many freshmen lost their seat uh, seats in 2020. And, you know, I think that um, there's a number of races, I mean, including in L.A., where we lost a seat by 300 votes. Um, and so the Republicans are sort of doing anything and everything they can to make sure that Democrats expand their majority. But, you know, the question is, do we take advantage of that? Do we utilize that? Um, I think, you know, as of a day ago, we were at 64 million Americans vaccinated. Looks like we're on track to hit 100 million. Um, that'll probably be a one day story. You know, how do we extend that and talk about that through next November? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of credit that's going to need to go into this administration and translate into, um, you know, not having a, a, a Senate where we have the majority, but we're still in the minority. And, you know, we have to figure out how to do that. I mean, there's real reason to be terrified of these midterms, because, I mean, we've seen just how dangerous, especially House Republicans have become. I mean, I, I don't even want to think about what President Biden would have to face you know, if the House of Representatives is run by the insurrectionists. I mean, yeah, we can't get our stuff through right now and we control, you know, the House, the Senate and the White House. And we're not good at this shit. No. Democrats are not good at midterms. We we fuck it up and there's just way too much at stake this time to yeah. fuck it up. No, I agree. And I, and I think that's what's next. And then the other piece, I think, too, is all the local seats. You know, M Michelle Obama said something a long time ago that was um will always be important, which is like, if we can get two more votes at this polling location and we can get three more votes at this polling location, not only are we going to win these local seats, but we're going to help these statewide races. And too often Democrats pour, you know, $90 million into a statewide race, as opposed to like, how do we put this money into local races, which is naturally going to support the top of the ticket. And that's always an ongoing issue. So I, you know, I think that if we can continue to win back, we lost, a, I think, a what, 1,000, 1,200 seats under Barack Obama, and we won back four or 500 of those, maybe more under Trump. We've got to continue to win those local seats um, and, and build a future of the party in some of these states that people have written off forever. Because I think that like uh, Georgia and Texas, you know, these are states that could potentially be blue for a long time in the future. But I think we have states like Minnesota 
that could be read in the next presidential and you wind up in you know, all of a sudden with a Republican governor like the state of Maryland, if you just take things for granted. I mean, we really are hanging on by a thread. And if you look at the, you know, the voter suppression laws being introduced in uh, more states than I care to count right now, I mean, are we just lambs walking to a slaughter in the midterms of the next presidential? I hope not. I mean, I, I'm not hopeful about a lot of stuff, but I, I am hopeful that, um, you know, we continue to learn how to build on these things and win. But, you know, I'd love to get to a point where we're, we're electing folks and then we're having, you know, some primaries like we did in um, in Massachusetts where, you know, we can then have a more progressive person uh, who wins in these seats. That's the point where we need to get to. But right now we just need to win these seats back. Yeah, I go back and forth. It depends on what mood you catch me in. Someday I'm screaming at our stick in the mud centrist members and I want to run a primary challenge right up their ass. And then the next day, I'm like, guys, we got to get on the same team if we're going to stop these Republicans from ruining this country. So it really just depends on how you catch me. So, Adam, this is the inaugural episode, and I've been telling the listeners, both of them, uh, about my my background in politics and journalism and I've just I've just told the story up to the point to where I'm working for this really shitty, unorganized super PAC that's having trouble making payroll and really fucking around with the people that are working for it. And then I met this other dude there who was similarly pissed off to, as I was. And that's you. You might have told us your side. You must have seen this psychopath with the weird accent and been instantly attracted. <laughs> I was kind of excited in, when was that? 2019. 18, right? right after, yeah, it was right after the midterms. Yeah. yeah, after 18, early 19, thinking like, okay, you know, I can focus on one thing and not feel like I'm just spread all over the place and do a lot of good stuff and uh, everything fell apart. And actually, I'd say that was probably one of the worst years of my life because I'm trying to figure out, you know, three, four or five months at a time, how are you going to pay this bill? How are you going to pay this bill? How's your car not going to get towed? And, uh, you know, the, the, I met, and you've got a kid, I got a kid. I mean, it's not just you No, I, um, you know, but I met you and, uh, uh, it was a great, uh, friendship and, you know, professional relationship moving forward. And, you know, I think there's sort of like a silver lining and all these shitty things that happen. And, uh, you know, I, I look back and think that like, okay, where I've come from there to now, I'm incredibly grateful to be where I am today. I mean, there's so many scam artists in this business. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I feel so bad for, you know, somebody out there who wants to make a contribution and they're trying to figure out, okay, is this actually going to make a difference or am I just putting this in some rich asshole's pocket? Totally. And I just, I don't envy people trying to sift through that shit to figure out what's what. And honestly, the people we were working for, they weren't good people. I mean, it, you know, for me having, you know, I was still pretty new on this side of things and it really skeeved me out. And it also really pissed me off. Yep. No, I mean, I, I still feel like I'm recovering from that every single day. But um, so why'd you want to work with me? Yeah. Why Sam? <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously a little rough around the edges. Um, who, who said I want to work with you? Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I uh, No, I mean, look, I think the world of you, I think you are one of the most talented people um, in this party, even though you often don't want to be in the party. Um, or you feel like the party has left you and I think you're totally underutilized. I think that, um, but you know, talking about, uh, burning bridges, it's sometimes difficult to build a bridge in terms of how do we, uh, affect a campaign or an organization where we think we can do good things for them and get them on the right path while also dealing with the same bullshit that, 
um, is so hard to get people to overcome or remove or move on past. And, 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 you know, there's a constant, not a learning curve on our part, but a constant, like, how do we fix this and, and do good stuff. And so that's always the balance, right? Like, I think that we have a lot of good things that we can offer and, and help people with, but at the same time, they're just so, you know, again, it goes back to Brooklyn. Like you don't want to be a place where like good ideas go to die and you've got to sometimes kind of, you know, help people slowly to kind of get the right direction. Well, you're right. I'm definitely a bridge burner, hence the name of the show. And really that's uh, kind of the opposite of politics. You win by addition, not subtraction. And I, I hand out way too many fuck yous to be effective that way. We've, you know, we just elected a president who's sort of um, of the mindset that we're going to move on from January 6th. We're going to move on and we're going to reach out um, to people across the aisle. And then every time I have a phone call with Sam, I hang up and I'm like, oh, fuck them all. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely fuck them all. And how beneficial it is, you know, to have someone like Sam who like keeps, um, the media, at least for me in check when me sort of as a neophyte, the last four years was sort of on the side of the media, um, against sort of the fake news rhetoric. Um, how important are people like Sam, who's holding even liberal media, MSNBC, New York Times, whatever, accountable when they're still giving passes to, you know, the domestic terrorists that we just saw that are absolutely not being held accountable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like it's one of these things where, you know, under Trump, things move so quickly. And I think even just pulling Trump off of Twitter and him being out has made things slow down a little bit. It still moves quick, but there's there's more time to focus on what we should focus on. The problem is, is that, you know, um, DC and, you know, a lot of these Capitol Hill reporters and sort of mainstream media are spending that extra time focused on the wrong things. And, and so you've got to constantly, you know, almost kind of keep a list and remind people of this At the same time, like on the Joe Biden thing, I mean, it, it's one thing, you know, if, if, if he as president wants to, to move on to X, Y, and Z that he feels needs to get done right now. But at the same time, you know, you cannot take the base for granted. And, um, you know, they, they're fighters, they want this stuff done. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of people too, that are, um, that, you know, you go back to, to Robert Mueller, right? Like so many people thought that like, this was going to be the, the, the kind of key here in terms of what everyone needed and it wasn't. So I think we just need to sort of remember the past, um, you know, continue to inject it, hold folks accountable but also like be, be skeptical. Um, you know, a lot of people right now online and Sam and I've talked about this recently are, are saying like, Oh, Merrick Garland is going to do X, Y, and Z, and he's going to do all this stuff. And everyone believes that. And I think they probably believe it for the right reasons. But at the same time, you know, I think we need to, we need to help, uh, you know, push this stuff to the forefront, not let it be forgotten and, and hopefully make his job easier. Otherwise it sort of just disappears and people move on. Yeah. I mean, I hate how cynical I am about this, but to me, it just feels like he's gotten away with it. I mean, you, you've already got this, you know, full on effort by Fox News and some Republicans to completely rewrite the history of what happened on January 6th. And, you know, I, I just I feel like we're too timid sometimes. I think we, we took that high road shit to heart and sometimes we just get bludgeoned with it. Because he still is the face of the Republican Party. That's it. They just they just didn't pay the societal price for, you know, a terrorist attack against their own goddamn country. And it's just, 
you know, it, maybe the news cycle is just moving too fast. I don't know, but whatever it is, it just it feels like there wasn't the reckoning we needed, and that a line has been crossed, and we're in a, a scary, scary fucking place now. Is there anything to gain by reaching out to the to the voter or even like the legislator that believes that the twenty twenty election was stolen or is on that side? Is there anything to gain when we have such a slim majority in the House and the Senate? Yeah, like on a state level or on a congressional level? I, mean, I say in general. Yeah. I mean, how do you reach out to somebody who thinks, you know, the sky is green and the grass is blue? I think you don't. I think you have to defeat them. And I think that's what we should spend most of and our in time. In Kentucky, the grass is blue, yeah. by the way. Yeah. I think I think we have to spend the next two years figuring out, okay, who incited an insurrection, not just in Congress, but up and down um, in the states on the ballot, and, and who is not an elected official that incited a riot that's running for the first time that was, you know, um, uh, uh, on record you know, inciting a uh, insurrection in our capital, and we have to defeat them. And, and, you know, whether they're running for, you know, county judge or whether they're running for Congress, I think that collectively, you know, this is something that Republicans would use this against us for the next 10 years if it was us, but, but it's not. Um, and so, yeah, you know, right. we need to do that. And that's, that's it. I'm with you, man. I don't, I don't want to reason or negotiate with Trumpism. Yeah. I want to beat it. It's un-American. Right. And if you give it an inch, it takes a mile. That's what we learned the last yep. four years. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, you know, you just got to, you got to be Mitch McConnell on like, you know, the good side and, and run his playbook against all these people. But we don't really have a McConnell, do we? No, we have a bunch of people that I think uh, would run the Senate like Mitch McConnell who are not in an elected position. And those are the folks that are constantly pushing our folks in the elected positions to do something. But at the same time, you know, w- collectively we can all come together and, and try to make that difference. I think we'll always be unhappy with our elected officials. You know, we might be happy here and there. We might be inspired here and there. I think we are grateful to be at least where we are today, as opposed to what this could have been. Um, I don't. I don't think we'll ever just be kind of genuinely happy altogether. Well, that's just kind of my mo, though. I know I'm never going to be happy. And that's <laughs> that's sort of the. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the trick, though. I mean, if you're Nancy Pelosi, you've got to, you know, you've got to sort of sift through and be like, okay, who are the reasonable people who are giving me good advice? And who's the fucking crank from Kentucky who just keeps cussing and yelling and, you know, doesn't actually have a constructive (laughs) plan for doing jack shit. Yeah. I mean, um, but you know, I think that, you know, looking back two years, we've given, we've given a lot of kind of, you know, thoughts and passed things on to her. And, um, uh, she can, she continues to reach out every single week and continues to do a call every week. And, um, you know, it says a lot about her. And, you know, and I think we have to give some credit. I mean, Democrats aren't in that sort of passive posture that they've been in in the past. I mean, they're they're being very aggressive on COVID relief. They're being very aggressive on a number of things. You look at, you know, when Biden came in, some of the people he fired right away. It's just, you know, I think January 6th was such a heinous attack. It was, you know, it, it was so violating of, of of our sovereignty as a nation and our democracy. And I just I think for a lot of us, it's it's put us such it's given us such a visceral reaction that we want revenge, plain and simple. I mean, you know, we'll call it, you know, we'll we'll set we'll settle for justice, but we want revenge. Is Jamie Harrison aggressive enough? That's just me asking. I think I think he is. I mean, I I don't know. I I've never been a believer in the model where you needed somebody to be visible in that role. I think you know, to me, a good DNC chair raises a shitload of money, makes every, makes, makes sure that it's, the party is technologically proficient. And then other than that, just kind of stays out of the way. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And I, I think the kind of added benefit to Jamie Harrison is one, he can do all those things, but two, 
just you know coming off of campaign against Lindsey Graham, he's got this massive platform now and um, just a huge reach online that I think is going to help you know when he punches back, get that word out, and people know it's coming from the DNC chair. Um, it's it's just sort of night and day from where we just came from. I hadn't thought about that. Democrats seem. We tend to turn on our losers, though. Like, we're really harsh and unforgiving when one of our candidates doesn't come through. You think Jamie Harrison maybe gets a pass there because South Carolina was such an uphill battle? Yeah, and I, I also think that, um, you know, look, whether he's right or wrong, I mean, you know, Congressman Clyburn has come out and also thought that um, there was a lot more that we could have done in South Carolina. But, too, like, he made the point we don't leave our own on the battlefield. And, you know, he was one of the first to get behind Jamie. Uh, Stacey Abrams was not interested in being chair. And despite, you know, what a lot of folks on Twitter said, and I, I think that we we have somebody who excites people and took on a fight that was tough, even if, you know, we had a slim chance of winning, um, he, he did what needed to be done and didn't, you know, let Lindsay go without a run. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. I think in some of these states. It is an unwinnable race, but you still gain something by making these sons of bitches defend the heinous shit they're doing in Washington. Yep. It's it's interesting the way Congressman Clyburn has always been there. He's he's like this quiet hand guiding Democrats to victory. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you've got the cranks like me, you've got the Clyburns on the other end who are just, you know, steady and focused and putting the pieces together to win. We can never elect you, Sam. Yeah, that, oh, God, I've known that forever. <laughs> but it, I tell you, it, it reminds me of something that McConnell, Mitch McConnell always said, though. He, he says, you know, there are people who want to make a difference and then there are people who want to make a point. And I think, you know, that's something Democrats really have to take to heart. It's not something I think Republicans have t- t- taken to heart. I think, you know, they, they riled up their base first with the Tea Party and then in birtherism and all that stupid shit. And then it turned on them, right? They created this Frankenstein monster. We're not the first to say it, but it, they created this Frankenstein monster and it just completely fucking turned on them. Well, Adam, we really appreciate your time, you coming on. Uh, will you join us again? Absolutely, anytime. This is going to be a weekly podcast, and one of the things I want to make sure we're talking about every single week is how people can get involved, and I think you can really be helpful there. So we'd love it if you'd come back. Awesome. I appreciate it. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for today's show, but I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank Adam for joining us, and I want to thank Ruby, my producer, for keeping this thing on the rails. I want to thank Steve, Grant, Jack, Marley, everybody else making this possible, and I want to thank you for tuning in. God, I hope you don't have something better to do next week. I love you, you sexy patriots. See you next week.